<laughs> we, we are led so well week in and week out around here, and it's just an absolute gift. Uh, I love that song. It was written by a friend of ours named David Lunsford. David wrote it for his community out in Seattle called Eastlake, but it has become sort of an anthem for uh, communities like ours all over the place who really, there have been times when it really was just us together in this. And um, yeah, I'm so grateful for him and for that gift. Uh, so today's the big day. It's Groundhog Day. I don't, know how, I don't know how you like to celebrate. I like to celebrate privately, so please respect that. If you, if you watch The Office, you get that joke. If not, you should Google it. Um, so uh, Super Bowl Sunday, let's do a quick survey. Who here today is rooting for the San Francisco? Okay. Okay, who's rooting for Kansas City? Okay, who's still rooting for the Titans? There you go. Who's just rooting for J-Lo and Shakira? Okay, there you go. That's it. So a little something for everybody. Uh, anybody just here for the commercials? Okay, so all over the place. But hey, we're together in this, so that's okay. We can all hold her. Um, we're in a series uh, called Rhythm, and what we've been doing in this series is trying to look at, as some of us have made this journey from a more conservative uh, understanding of Christianity to a more progressive understanding of Christianity, some of the practices that we used to have back there, uh, we don't know what to do with. So we've been looking at things like Sabbath, we've been looking at things like prayer. Last week we talked about scripture, the Bible. And this week I want to talk about something that I, I don't know that a lot of times we've put in the category of a spiritual practice, but I really believe it can be one, and that's hospitality. So I want to think about what does it mean to be a hospitable community, a person, and then how does that aid us along in the journey of transformation? So I want to begin with the idea of hospitality. In the ancient world, hospitality was, uh, it kind of had this divine sacredness to it. It was a sacred responsibility. It was what the gods wanted. They, they wanted you to be hospitable toward other people. There's actually a Greek word, uh, xenia. Uh, it means guest friendship. It's connected to the word for stranger. So it means not, not just people you know friendship, but it means welcoming in the stranger. Interestingly, xenophobia is connected to this word. Xenia is about welcoming the stranger. Xenophobia is about fear of the stranger. Um, and I, I would argue that it's better for a society to have xenia and super dangerous to have a lot of xenophobia. Um, and, and so this is the concept in the, the ancient world, not even just in the Bible, but in the ancient world, is that we have a responsibility to welcome strangers for guest friendship. Now, there were two, a two-way street here. There were two relationships at stake. One was the relationship of host to guest. So what would work is if you were traveling, because in the ancient world, traveling either by yourself or in a small group actually put you in a very vulnerable situation. Travelers were vulnerable. So Jesus told a story that we would call the story of the Good Samaritan. Uh, and the story is about a guy who's traveling who gets sort of beaten up and left for dead, right? Jesus wasn't going, gosh, I really need a metaphor here. This was a common practice in the ancient world. If you were traveling, you were in danger. And so it was incumbent upon the people you would encounter to treat you well and to take care of you. So the host the responsibility of the host to the guests would be to provide them a, a warm, dry place to sleep, to provide them with a meal, uh, to treat them as essentially if they were a, you know, the gods visiting them in their home. And then the responsibility of the guest to the host, which was not to be too big of an inconvenience or a, a burden. And you were also expected to eat whatever was put in front of you. And I imagine there were some people in some awkward situations uh, with stuff they didn't want to, you ever been in that situation where you're in somebody's home and they put something down for you to eat and you're like, uh, 
I remember I was, I was visiting this couple once, dear couple, and they had provided lunch, and part of lunch was raw asparagus. I love asparagus. I'm just not into it raw. But I was sitting there going, mm, this is good. This is so, still got a little dirt on it. It's nice. I like the farm to table is what it was. And uh, uh, literally. But <laughs> the point is, you eat what is put in front of you. And as a guest, you are responsible to share stories and news. Stories of your travels and news from the world. Because Twitter hadn't been invented yet. Uh, there was no 24-hour news cycle. You Really, news would be late getting to you. And so you were expected, somebody's welcomed you into their home, they fed you well, and now you tell them kind of what's going on in the world. And this is how it essentially was supposed to work. The host welcomes you in, and it's a divine responsibility to do so, and then the guest has a divine responsibility to respond in a certain way. There's actually a Roman poet named Ovid who told a story, so it was the story of Bossus and Philemon. So the stories of this couple, Bossus and Philemon, they lived in a village, and the story goes that one day, Zeus and Hermes, two Greek gods, Zeus was the, sort of the chief god, Zeus was also the, the patron of Xenia. He was the patron of guest friendship. Zeus and Hermes go into this village dressed as travelers. Nobody knows their gods. They're dressed as travelers. They go door to door seeking for somebody to invite them in because they're tired and hungry, and nobody will open their home to them except for this couple Bossus and Philemon. They welcome Hermes and Zeus in, unbeknownst to them. They just think they're helping some travelers. They provide them a meal. They actually were going to sacrifice their, their, their or kill their goose to feed them. And they, it was a cute goose. And they stopped them. So they didn't, no goose was harmed in the making of that meal. Um, but they came in, they ate the meal, they exchanged, they shared stories. And when it the content time came for bed, they reveal themselves. We're, the, we're gods. I'm Zeus. This is my associate. I don't know how you would do that. This is my associate Hermes. Uh, and um, we're gods. And uh, so they tell the couple, Bossus and Philemon, they say, listen, um, because we were treated, because nobody in this village except you displayed guest friendship to us, this village is going to be destroyed. But you will escape. And we want you to leave the city and get up, go up to the mountains and do not look back until you're away from the city because it's going to be wiped completely out. Does that sound like anything you've ever heard before? Is there a story in the Bible that perhaps resonates with that? Right? The story of Sodom and Gomorrah. Right, which is a story of these divine guests who enter a village seeking protection, seeking you know, uh, an invitation in, and nobody will welcome them except for one family, Lot and his family. The story of Sodom and Gomorrah is a story about guest friendship. Notice what Jesus says. Jesus sends his disciples out at one point, and he says, don't take anything with you. No food, nothing. Just like your, your, your bag and your staff and your sandals. It's all you take. Go into the villages, preach the kingdom of God. When somebody welcomes you, you go into their home, you eat what you're given, and you announce the kingdom of God and you, you know, that whole thing. But when he's telling them to do this, notice what he says about not being welcomed. If anyone refuses to welcome you or listen to your words, shake the dust off your feet as you leave that house or city. I assure you that it will be more bearable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah on Judgment Day than it will be for that city. Jesus puts the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah in the same context as the sin of not welcoming strangers. The story of Sodom and Gomorrah isn't about who you love. The story of Sodom and Gomorrah is about who you welcome and who you refuse to welcome, which is interesting because I don't know about you, but I've seen really angry street preachers with some really terrible signs, both in content and craftsmanship, <laughs> and they're, they're marching around with them, right? Have you, have you seen this phenomenon? Yeah. And actually, 
while they're marching around telling who's in and who's out, it's those folks, those street preachers are the ones committing the actual sin of Sodom. They are not welcoming God's children. And, you know, I just would say to quote the prophetess Taylor Swift. (laughs) You know what I'm talking about. You need to calm down. You're being too loud. Right? Like, you just need to calm down. The story of Sodom is the story of refusing to welcome the stranger and to provide for them and to care for them. And all over the place, when people do that, they're actually committing that same transgression. But for Jesus, his ministry was grounded in this concept of radical hospitality. I mean, if you look at the stories of Jesus, you find Jesus entering a lot of homes that weren't his, eating a lot of food that he didn't bring, right? Like, Jesus depended, his ministry was dependent on the kindness and Xenia, guest friendship of other people. He would travel from place to place preaching, and he would enter someone's home, and he often got flack for the homes he entered. But he would enter a home, and he would eat, and he would celebrate, and he would tell stories. I mean, Jesus' entire ministry was built around this idea of guest friendship. Jesus would go around, and some of the ways that he, as a guest, would, would do his part was he provided free health care. <laughs> Just seems like it should be possible. Um, He goes around, he he provides healing. He goes around and he welcomes the people in who have been cast out by all the people in their community. He brings them into his xenia, to his guest friendship, and recognizes them and sees them and embraces them as God's children. Such a beautiful, beautiful thing. I mean, we sort of, depending on who you listen to, it seems like Jesus was just angry all the time and marching around going, you're in, you're out. And actually Jesus is going around going, everybody's in, let's come on, come to the party, come to the celebration. Let's, let's share our lives with each other. And of course, the first Christians, they were so moved and inspired by Jesus that they continued that practice. And I would argue that some of the ways that some of the people who ended up being the first Christian began to understand that Jesus was not a figure of the past, but a figure of the present, was that when they would gather together and somebody would break bread and they would pass it out and they would drink wine and they would share stories with each other of Jesus, and that I think they began to realize Jesus isn't gone, that when, when we do this He is very present among us. We can't talk about Jesus in past tense. When we do this, he's present tense. And the first Christians enacted this in interesting ways. So there's a couple texts in the book of Acts. One is about the the day of Pentecost, which is this story of all together in one place, the spirit descends in a mighty rushing wind. There's fire because pyrotechnics make everything more interesting. And the people begin to speak in other languages. And at the end of that day, Peter gets up and Simon Peter gives this sermon about what's going on. And then at the end of the sermon, notice what it says about this community. The believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the community, to their shared meals and to prayers. A sense of awe came over everyone. God performed many wonders and signs through the apostles. All the believers were united and shared everything. They would sell pieces of property and possessions and distribute the proceeds to everyone who needed them. Every day they met together in the temple and ate in their homes. They shared food with gladness and simplicity. They praised God and demonstrated God's goodness to everyone. The Lord added daily to the community those who were being saved. Did you, this is rhetorical, sort of, but did you notice how many times food popped up in that? I mean, I, no, no wonder Baptists trace their origin to the early church. I mean, I grew up Baptist. You, if you had any excuse for a potluck, you threw it, right? And that's what these folks are doing. They're like, every time they're together, somebody's 
breaking bread. Somebody's inviting and they're bringing stuff and they're having the shared experience of meal. And I, my favorite line, it's gone now, but my favorite line was the one where it, talked, it said um, they demonstrated God's goodness to everyone and that people wanted to be a part of that. When I read that line, uh, as I was preparing for this teaching, I immediately thought of Grace Point. They demonstrated God's goodness with everyone. They shared God's goodness with everyone. I think that's what you do so beautifully as a community. I mean, it's interesting to me that when people come into this space at 9 or 1045, um, I've had people remark to me, like, when we came in, the service hadn't even started, but there was an energy present. There was this sense of welcome present. There was this sense of togetherness present that nobody had to create or manipulate. And that's true, and it's because of you. It's because of what you bring in. It's because of who you are. It's because as a community, I really do believe you demonstrate God's goodness. You demonstrate God's love. You demonstrate God's welcome, radical embrace and hospitality to everyone. And no wonder more and more people want to be a part of this. It's because of you. It's because of who you are as a community. And that comes out of who you are as people. Radical welcome and hospitality were part of the early church, and I believe so, they're so beautifully a part of who we are as a community, and that's because of you. Notice this next text, Acts chapter 4. It's another similar, similar summation. The community of believers was one in heart and mind. None of them would say, this is mine, about any of their possessions, but held everything in common. I have four-year-olds and three-year-olds at my house. I hear this is mine constantly, um, but not in this community, right? They're, they're not doing that. The apostles continued to bear powerful witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and an abundance of grace was at work in them all. There were no needy persons among them. Those who owned properties or houses would sell them, bring the proceeds from the sales, and place them in the care and under the authority of the apostles, and it was distributed to anyone who was in need. In the sense of hospitality, people who are making sure that we're taking care of each other well, that everybody has their needs met, that nobody's going hungry, that nobody doesn't have a place to sleep that's safe, and warm. That's what the early Christian community was about. And it was so powerfully at work that more and more people said, that's the kind of world. I don't even think it was a religious decision. I think it was, that's the kind of world I want to be a part of. Right? I want to be a part of that world. And so this idea of hospitality is, is handed down to us through Jesus. It's handed down to us through the early Christians and I, I believe it's ultimately a spiritual practice because I believe what it does is it creates transformation in us. I just want to share a few ways I think we can, we can cultivate a practice of hospitality. One, I think we can cultivate a, a practice of hospitality with a perspective of abundance and not scarcity. Right, I think part of the problem that we currently have in our world is that we all tend, or many of us tend to function as if there's only so much pie to go around and we got to get ours plus a little bit just in case. Right, as opposed to there is enough for everyone. Our planet currently grows enough food for 10 billion people, and yet a good chunk of people are still starving to death. Right? That's not a problem of, of abundance or scarcity, it's a problem of how we're distributing what's available. What if we begin to see things not as scarcity, oh, there's only so much, but what if, and I think hospitality does this, if we all join together, we're gonna have more than enough. There's this great story where Jesus ends up doing a mass feeding of 5,000 people. Um, and th the story is, you know, goes like this, that Jesus is out and he's been leading the people, teaching them, and they're out in the middle of the desert, and the disciples say, look, we're way far away from town. People are getting hungry. We, we should just dismiss them so they can go find some food. Now, the reality is, if 
you're not, in, in this culture, if you weren't out working in the middle of the day, the, then you were either rich or you were in subsistence or, or lower. You were poor, you were in poverty. Um, and it, my guess is if you were rich, you, you wouldn't, you'd pack your own lunch, right? So these, these are folks who are below the poverty line. They don't have enough food. The disciples say, hey, this is irresponsible. We need to send them back so they can find some food. And Jesus says, well, just feed them. I think, in, like, that's why I think sometimes Jesus was in Enneagram 7, because it's exactly what an Enneagram 7 would say. Well, let's just feed them. It's fine, right? And the disciples are like, we don't have anything. We have one youth who's got a lunch, like a number six from Long John Silver's. Now, I got to be honest with you, I haven't been to Long John Silver's in a long time. I don't know what a number six is, but you can imagine. And he brings it over, Jesus blesses it, breaks it, and everybody gets enough food to eat. Now, you can spend your time arguing whether or not that story should be taken as literally true or as some sort of parable or metaphor, but the reality of that story is, I think Jesus teaches us that when these people were facing hunger, he has them all sit down in groups, everybody who has something to share shares it, and everybody gets enough food to eat, right? It's pretty simple. Everybody brings what they have to the table, and then everybody gets taken care of. I think that's how abundance works, that on our own, we may not feel like we have an overabundance, but if we join together, we can make sure nobody goes hungry. We may not have all the money in the world at our access, but if, if we're all willing to help out what, in what way we can, something, can be, something powerful can happen. The world could be transformed. What if we begin to see not that, oh, there's just a lack. What if we begin to see, gosh, together we have an abundance. I would also talk, uh, I would say that it's about interdependence, not independence. Now, I know as Americans, we immediately want to default to independence, right? And especially in July when we're, you know, blowing stuff up and wearing red, white, and blue stuff. Like, we're independent people. Uh, and the reality is, I think, that that independence often works to our disadvantage because we begin believing the narrative that we're all alone. We begin believing the narrative that whatever we have, we did it, we earned it, we pulled ourselves up by our bootstraps with, you know, million-dollar loan from our father, but we did it. You know, we did it on our own. And the reality is that we have always been interdependent, always. Independence is an illusion. How many of you gave birth to yourself? Because that would be interesting. So if you have a story, I mean, right? How many of you, when you were born, changed your own diapers? fed yourself, drove yourself to the doctor. One of my four-year-olds now has decided that she knows how to drive, and so every time we get in the car, she has to come apart because we won't put her in the front driver's seat. I kid you not. <laughs> I kid you not. The reality is we all were born into the world very dependent. And the invitation, I think, to move on from that is not to independence, but to interdependence, to realizing that we actually need each other. And that maybe you've got all the money in the world, at your fingertips, and if so, we should talk at the end of the gathering, but you have all the money in the world at your fingertips, or you may not have very little, but, you, but somebody else may have lo the, the love and embrace and companionship and friendship, right? So there's this, like we all bring our own stuff to the table, we all bring our own stuff to the room, but we really, really, really need each other. The idea of independence could be the worst thing that has ever developed inside humanity, because when we're independent, everything becomes about us and not about the community, and we put we prioritize self over the common good. And I think the Christian tradition is an invitation to the common good. It is an invitation toward caring about the community. And if the community is doing well, then I assume I'll be doing well. 
right? And if I'm maybe helping feed somebody this week, maybe they're gonna help me and then, like it's this, this relationship realizing that we need each other, that we, our lives are a web of relationships and they matter and they need tending and they need care. And it's essentially creating relational hospitality for other people to be a part of your life. Uh, I would say that it's important to give, but it's also important to receive. How many of you in this room like to give? Okay, how many of you really like to receive? Yeah, much fewer hands, and I think that's actually a problem. Because, I mean, I, I tend to be that way, like, you know, if somebody does something nice for me, I'll try to find a way to, like, do it back for them before the dust even settles. So we're even, right? We, we live in that sort of mentality. Well, we gotta be even. We gotta be even. You do something nice for me, I gotta do something nice for you. You do something else nice for me, bam, I'm gonna do something nicer for you, right? We get in this sort of aggressive, I'm gonna pay you back for giving something nice to me or being present for me or whatever. And I think that part of this deal is learning how to receive, not just learning how to give. Learning how to be the recipient of someone else's generosity, kindness, compassion, love, presence, whatever that looks like. It's important to cultivate in us uh, a, a way to, to be giver, givers and a way to be receivers. One of the things Paul talks about in Corinthians 12, 1 Corinthians 12, is he's dealing with this community where the, the, their practice of the Eucharist, the Lord's Supper, has become so dysfunctional. And it's become dysfunctional because the, the, some people are arriving early i.e., this would have been the more wealthy people in the community, and bringing good food and good wine and consuming it all. And then when the people who come late, i.e., the people who are working a trade or the people who are slaves and they're just now getting away from taking care of their masters, they show up, and there's nothing really left but whatever they brought, which would likely have been meager. And so you have one group of people fed and drunk. You have another group of people who really need the sustenance and nourishment hungry. And Paul says, this community is centered around sharing food together. It's about rich and poor eating food together. It's about rich people eating the food the poor folks brought. It's about the poor folks eating the food. The it's about bringing it together and sharing. It's learning to give, but it's also learning to receive. It's this beautiful gift that is so radical and so challenging to the way we tend to think about how the world should be run. And then lastly, I'd say this. We, we've got to commit to bigger tables and more chairs. Bigger tables more chairs. One of the things I think that it's so easy to forget is that there are people who need what Grace Point offers that aren't here yet. Right? And that's one of the reasons we've asked people who can to come at nine o'clock. It's because this service tends to be really, really packed and it's exciting and it's energizing. Uh, it also means that we're running out of seats and, and, and um, running out of seats means running out of opportunities because I'm guessing that people who come and there's not a seat for them, maybe will come once or twice, then they're like, they're not, they're not prepared for me, so I'm not gonna be back. So that's why we asked that. Like, hey, let's make room. If it's, if it's possible for you to come at 9 o'clock, we could use your energy. We could use your presence. Please come at 9 o'clock. If not, of course, don't worry about it. But this idea of making space, making space in our community for people who aren't here yet, making space in our community for each other to be heard and seen and loved and valued. One of the, my favorite lines in the entire New Testament is this line from Paul in Galatians where he says, bear one another's burdens, and in doing so, you fulfill the law of Christ. Like if, if I were to give you a piece of paper and say, list me the top 10 rules that Christians should keep. I, I don't know that bearing one another's burdens would be at the top of the list, but Paul says that's the only one. You bear one another's burdens, and for Paul, the law of Christ is the law of love, law of self-interested, giving, compassionate, graceful love. You bear one another's burdens, you carry each other's load, you support one another through what you're going through, 
And in doing so, you in some way embody and flesh Christ to everybody around you. Because that was Paul's metaphor. You are the body of Christ, and everybody's a part of it. St. Teresa of Avila would go on to say, Christ has no body now but yours. No hands and feet on earth but yours. Yours are the eyes through which he looks compassion on this world. And in our efforts to build a bigger table, to provide more seats for more people who need to be at that table, they need that nourishment, they need that sustenance, they need that belonging, that's a spiritual practice. Coming into Grace Point on Sunday morning and doing what you do so well, which is welcoming every single person who enters the space, I don't know if you know this, we have some folks who are on the, like, the greeting team, I don't know what you call it, but the hospitality team probably, and they welcome people and hand, hand you like our sheet for the week and all that. And there's a few people who are sort of in charge of that, in charge of coffee, but in the reality, every single person in this room is you know, on the like, greeting team. We all have a responsibility and an opportunity to welcome the people around us, to make sure that nobody comes into this space on a Sunday morning and leaves feeling like they haven't been seen, or leaves feeling like they hadn't been heard. Or a person, if they like to hug, they don't leave having been, not having been hugged. If you're not a hugger, then you leave with an appropriate amount of eye contact. I don't know what like, you want, but like, you get what you need. Um, I'm going to invite our band to come back up. Um, you should probably get ready to take your socks off because they're going to knock them off if you don't. We want you to be appropriately ready for that. Um, here's what I'd say, and, and I'll close with this. Um, I, I think that hospitality can be transformative because what it ultimately does is it connects us with each other. Right? This is why our meal groups are, or our care groups are so important, right? Because they connect us with each other. They get you in a room with real human beings who have real stories, and you get to share your stories, and you get to hear theirs, and you share real food together, and suddenly you find yourself thinking about them knowing that they had a doctor's appointment this week, and you're concerned about them, so you check on them, right? Like, it's this beautiful, it changes us, it transforms us from being just self-interested people, independent, self-interested people, to interdependent, compassionate, others-interested people. And my hope is, is that I'm interested in what's going on with you, and I'm thinking of you, that you're also doing the same for me. And in that way, nobody gets left out, nobody gets left behind, nobody gets forgotten. Are you with me? Yes. Hospitality, when it's done well, is a spiritual practice that will make your heart larger, it'll make your, um, your sense of belonging larger, and it'll make your view of the entire world more expansive, and I think we could all use a more expansive view of the world, right? Are you with me? Yes. All right, let's pray. God, we are so grateful um, for this community, which is a community, I believe, that practices hospitality so beautifully. It's our hope that nobody comes into this community without being appropriately welcomed and loved, that every person in this space will be seen they will know that their presence matters here. So continue to cultivate that heart in us, a heart for others. And may, may we, as we express xenia to one another and to people we don't even know, may it begin to stem the tide of xenophobia that's being stoked so terribly in this country, and even in our world. Light drives out darkness. Joy drives out despair. Love draws out, drives out fear. And may we be participants in that. And may the world be better. 
We ask this in the name of Jesus. And everybody said, amen. amen.